You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. Today, I'm joined by Jim Smithson, the author of Arras 1917, another of the Great War Group's introductions series of books. Jim, how's it going today? We're good today, thank you. The weather's not too brilliant, but it's getting colder, but I'm good, thank you. It is also getting colder here, which is my favorite time of the year, so it's fantastic. Um, So you wrote this book about Arras 1917, and in general, the kind of spring allied offensives. And the First World War operations were kind of a continuous string of learning and reacting from all of the armies. You know, looking at early 1917 for the British, they're of course operating and planning sort of in the months after the Battle of the Somme, which had kind of been a debacle. Um, What were some of the key takeaways from the fighting in the second half of 1916 that the British hoped to kind of use to improve or fix what they were doing during 1917? I think with the Battle of the Somme, one of the problems that a lot of history has is that everybody concentrates on the 1st of July, the absolute disastrous day, and don't see some of the progress that the British army makes over the next it's three months or something. It's the, end, it's the middle of November by the time the main fighting ends and the official end of the Battle of the Somme. And during that time, a number of battles took place and a number of different innovations came in. At the same time, it was recognised that the French had already made quite a few moves in their advances in in how they were going to fight a battle. And that was recognised as well, because the French had already gone through an absolute horrendous 1914 and 15, and they'd gone through that same process of what the heck's happening and how how are we going to do better than this. So we actually sent people also to meet with the French and see what they're doing. So the combined experience and also learning from the French meant there were a number of developments happened during that time. And one of the major ones that was already happening uh, was to do with artillery. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a little while. But at the same time, it was recognised that there was also the French had, to, had changed their way of actually handling their troops as bodies of men. And the result of that, the result of those two things, uh, of both artillery and that, was that between the end of the Battle of the Somme, or near the end of the Battle of the Somme, and then April 17, when we get to the Battle of Arras, a number of actual pamphlets are created. And the two main ones that are created are, and they're, they're called SS pamphlets, these, because uh, of the stationary part. Uh, SS-135 and 143 are to do with the division in attack and the, the organisation of a platoon. 
the basic sort of 40 men type unit that went to make, and a number of those men made a company, company make a battalion and so on. But that fighting body of about 40 men. Beforehand, we just had 40 men who were infantrymen, and we might have specialists elsewhere. Uh, bombers, for example, because the, the hand grenade was always called a bomb during the First World War for confusion. Uh, the bombers, and then there was also Lewis guns had come in, and also um, the rifle grenade, which was actually called the grenade, just to confuse us even more, but the rifle grenade. So these elements were all separated at, at the beginning when they were first sort of began to be used. But it was recognized that that all arms platoon, where, where a platoon of 40 men had all of those to, to their uh, to, to hand, was a much better way forward. So that was, that was the, uh, the, the SS-143. And also seeing the number of ways that a division went into attack and how it organized itself. So the and that was the learning on how to organize that element of a division, these 12, 14,000 men, all arms, artillery, uh, engineers, infantry, and so on, how they should fight together. But then also down at the bottom level, how a platoon should function. So that changed towards the end of the Battle of the Somme. We were, and the other main element was artillery. The French had been using a creeping barrage for quite some time, at the beginning, middle 1915. And the difference between a creeping barrage and what the British had been doing right up to the first day of the Somme was that in the, the British had been using one where we barrage for up to seven days, as before the first day of the Somme, with the hope that the front lines of the Germans would be devastated and we'd just walk over. Now, that just didn't work. First, because the Germans were in deep dugouts and we didn't destroy the front lines. We didn't destroy the front line units. So when the barrage then lifted, it lifted and went a good way back to the, to the German second line. So what you got then was that when, by the time the British troops had left the front line trench and were starting to advance across no man's land, the Germans had come out of the dugouts, set up the machine guns, manned the parapets, and they simply blew the British away as they tried to advance. That's where all those devastating losses on that first day of the Ju 1st of July 1916 came from. We repeated some of that. We, we kept repeating it with the same sort of lack of success. Some of the divisional artillery and the divisional leaders began to see that that might be better if the barrage did not move on too quickly. And, and then also talking to the French about what they were doing, because we were next to the French on the Somme. We were watching the, 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 unit, the divisions that were near the southern part of the Battle of the Somme were actually next to French units. So they watched the way the French artillery were, were, were dealing with things. And they saw that what this idea of a barrage that started near the German front lines, but didn't start moving forward until our troops were already crossing no man's land, meant that by the time the barrage moved away from the front line of the Germans, the British troops were already almost on them. So there wasn't this long gap. And that's what that creeping barrage, and then that barrage would then move forward at a certain pace to the next line and onwards and so on. And that was one of the major things that was taken forward from the, from the Somme and um, made so that all units then knew how to do that. So all the artillery officers of all the divisions were taught how, and planned. And you see maps where those things are planned. There are artillery barrage maps and they're like little contour ones. They're, little, they're lines that move forward in three or four minute intervals. So the poor gunners, it was really hard work for them because they would have to fire for maybe three, two minutes, which is probably, depending on the gun, a round or two or three rounds, and then they'd have to recalibrate re very slightly and then start firing again, then recalibrate. But for the troops on the ground, it was a lifesaver when it worked. 
and when they didn't lose the barrage, in other words, it didn't disappear. So, and they also, and then the other thing that they got was the platoon idea, and that was again disseminated through all of the units. So, all of the British units and Canadian units, because Canadians were very involved in the first of Battle of the Scarp as well, first day of the Battle of Arras, um, they were involved in that as well. So, all of these units had these newer techniques of how to fight. I think that, you know, as my sort of study of the First World War has gotten deeper over the years, I've become more and more impressed with those kind of like small evolutions and changes that are kind of happening all the time in all the armies during all of these attacks. Like from from a high level, it looks like they're kind of just doing the same thing over and over again. But when you really dig down, you see all kinds of little adjustments and changes, even within one kind of larger battle, like, like the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, okay, so looking looking into 1917 now, you know, the, the British sort of had multiple choices on where they could choose to launch an attack in 1917 if they wanted to. So, so why was this specific area in Arras chosen to be kind of the main point of British effort? Yeah, you have to go back to the end of 16, again, the end of the Battle of the Somme, really. But also the end of 16 was the end of the Battle of Verdun for the French, which had gone on for most of the year. And it was the, the, the final call, really, for General Joffre, the commander-in-chief of the French. And also politically, there's a political element to this as well, because the prime minister in England had been usurped, in a sense, and the prime minister was now, at the end of 16, Lloyd, David Lloyd George. And so we had these changes, both political and military, that Joffre has gone from the French um, hierarchy, and also Asquith has gone from the British political um, arena. And so we have two, two new people in. From the French side, they choose as their new commander-in-chief, General Nivelle. And Nivelle was fighting at the end of the Battle of Verdun quite successfully on a smallish scale compared to on an army scale, on a core scale, on an army scale, but not on a multiple army scale. Um, and he had level of successes and he thought he could expand that success that he'd had at Verdun um, on using artillery in a certain way, in this new modern way and so on, and he could break through the Germans. And he was very eloquent, fairly young for a general at that time, in his late 50s, and he was able to persuade the French that he, as commander-in-chief, could achieve what no one has done so far, break through the Germans and defeat them, actually win the war, not just win a battle, but win the war. And he was also, uh, his mother was English, so he was also obviously bilingual, or as near bilingual as, as, as it matters. So he's also very persuasive to Lloyd George, the new British Prime Minister. And so he was able, with the French, to dominate what 17 was going to turn into. The previous planning was, in a way, more of the same, probably around the Somme. But he said, no, no, we need to make a major battle. We need to carry out a major battle. And so he worked with Haig in terms of what that plan was going to look like. And Haig was quite agreeable to it. And Lloyd George was agreeable to the idea because it meant that it would be French doing the main part of the fighting and we, the British would only do part of it. Because Lloyd George was very conscious about the losses the British had already um, had out on the Somme, obviously. And so uh, this, this, the, the, this, it, the, the scene was set, basically, for a situation where the French were going to dominate what was going to happen. And Nivelle's idea was that he was going to have a major attack, but that was going to be further south than, on, than the Somme in the Champagne area, on what an area called Chemin des Dames. 
it's a ridge area. They've been fought over before, been fought in 14, and the French and Germans have been fighting there on and off uh, ever since. But that was going to be the main thrust. It's where the line, in a way, instead of going north-south, cuts across um, west towards east for a little while, towards Reims, and then starts going south again. So there's a bit of a dogleg there. And because of the Battle of the Somme, that dogleg and the Somme creates a little bit of a bulge in the German lines. So his idea was, if the British attacked in the north, um, around Arras, towards Cambrai, and also the French then attacked in the centre to pin the Germans in that middle, he would then attack in the south with his major force and basically, almost like a Second World War-style pincer movement, um, be able to destroy the German army. War's over. Job's done. A few things then go wrong, but that's where it comes from that it's going to, go in, uh, it's going to be in Arras. Uh, and why, why the British are going to take their part in Arras, uh, with a period of time between. It was supposed to be earlier. Nivelle wanted it very early, but no one was really ready by sort of end of February, March, when he wanted it to start off with. It ended up being sometime in April, um, by the time all the forces could be, could be got ready, mainly because of transport problems, getting all the munitions in, and so on and so forth. But that's why the battle was set around Arras. It was not the British choice as such. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And, and when they when they launch these attacks, you know, they're looking for a large success, the British are. And on the first day, you know, their attacks are pretty successful. So what do you attribute that success to? What we talked about after earlier on, um, we had learned how with ample preparation um, and all of the various skills at, at multiples of levels, I talked about two major ones in terms of creeping barrage and the platoon sort of tactics. But we was, we were, in, we'd improved sound ranging, we'd improved the communication between aircraft and artillery, uh, we'd improved all of the, the staff work that w- goes together to make sure that all of these things work together. Um, 
So that what you had was you had a counter-battery fire that was so effective that many of the war diaries from the 9th of April just talk about the German response being poor. They're so used on the Somme to the Germans pouring artillery down on them when they're trying to attack that all of a sudden it's it's desultory. It's, it's hardly coming down. And they're really surprised at that. But they shouldn't be because what's happened is that the major a major element of the British artillery that's not doing the creeping barrage has been basically active on counter barrage. And what they've done, and this is another little change, is that it's not an attempt to destroy the German guns. It's just simply to disrupt them. So a lot of gas is used. So gas shells are used to make the Germans basically less efficient, mixed in with high explosives so the Germans don't really know what's coming down on them. They've got to put their gas masks on. They've got to try and man the guns with that. But generally, the German artillery becomes ineffective. And we manage that because we know where the guns are because of the um, army, the, the Air Corps. Um, they have flown days before the 9th of April to map all of the German batteries. We use sound raging to try and pick up those batteries that we're not too sure of and where they are. So all of that means that every German battery is basically known down to a fairly precise level. And in fact, what we're doing before the 9th of April is aircraft are flying over while we register on these batteries. In other words, guns are firing and the, and the airplanes above are sending a message back saying, you're, you're 500 meters too far forward or you're 500 meters to the right or whatever until you're hitting the battery. And then they're telling the British battery, you're on target. So unless the Germans move then, and many of these things couldn't be, big guns couldn't be moved, they're registered for the actual day when they want to actually um, bombard them. So that and all of that together prepared the ground for the men going over at uh, Harpers 5 in the first, you know, at Vimy and further south as well, on the first day on the 9th of April. And the other thing that had happened was the Germans had actually developed a flexible defence, the front line not being so heavily held, and reserves further back, uh, but not too far back, to counterattack as soon as we take some of the front lines. And what had happened is that the commander um, of the German units in the area hadn't really taken that on board. Many of the troops were f as far forward as they were normally. And what was more important than that, that the Eingreifdivisionen, the counterattack divisions, were far too far back. They were a day's march away, a day and a half march away, far too far back to have an impact on the 9th of April. So a combination of all those things meant that in the northern parts on Vimy Ridge and in around Arras itself, many of the divisions that attacked there were very successful. Uh, we also used the idea of Fourth Division uh, actually went through Ninth Division. It was Ninth Division attacked early on in the day, and we pushed a whole division through to carry the attack further forward, uh, which had never been done before at that level. We'd moved, we'd learnt on the Somme how to not just attack and so the forward troops try and get as far as they can, but the forward troops take one bit and then the next troops go through and so on at a sort of battalion level, but not a whole division going through another one. That worked. Uh, fourth Division went through and took what was called the Green Line. The, the objective for the day. I mean, that was <laughs> the commanders was said we've taken the green line, but that was our furthest objective. Something unknown <laughs> up to that point of actually taking the furthest objective, and that has a repercussion actually um, in the next few days. It didn't work so well further south um, because there's one other element that has changed, which is not a tactical one, but is a um, a, a uh, industrial one, and that is that we've changed the fuse on our uh, our shells 
for getting rid of the barbed wire. Barbed wire is a massive thing in the First World War, and people underestimate, they talk about it all the time, but they underestimate its effect on a battle. If you don't get through the barbed wire, you're shot down. It's as simple as that, if the defence is good. If the defence is intact, you don't get past the barbed wire, you are in trouble. If the barbed wire is gone, you're better, you know, you're, you're moving forward. The, the Fuse 106, which came in during, during the end of 1916 and was in short supply, but some supply in 17, um, impacted immediately, blew the wire apart. The other shells didn't. They blew the wire around, but didn't blow it apart. Uh, uh, further south, there wasn't so many of that fuse available. And the wire wasn't broken, and we didn't break in. And the further south was also the first element of the Hindenburg line. And that Hindenburg, very strong fortification, newly built, the Germans retreated to, um, it stopped the British on the 9th dead, literally dead, unfortunately. Uh, we had heavy casualties and we did not break through further south. So the 9th of April is not an overall success. It's a success where all the things come together. Um, but where some elements missing, like Fuse 106, it still goes wrong. Yeah, so then elements that so came together, yeah. When you're trying to coordinate all of the artillery and the infantry attacks and everything, that like barbed wire staying together is so critical because it throws off all the timing and all the coordination that has been planned uh, for the attacks and allows the Germans to respond maybe in a far more coherent manner. Yeah, I mean, the 30th Division in, in the southern part, they attacked and the barbed wire was all in tight and they just simply didn't get past the barbed wire. And the Germans just cut them down at the barbed wire. Um, even though the German artillery wasn't responding as heavily, their machine guns in the Hindenburg line were active, and you only need three or four machine guns uh, with some crossfire on an area of where the troops are trying to get through the barbed wire, and it fails miserably. Um, interestingly, in the northern part of the attack, where we'd gone through three or four German lines, there were still some lines with barbed wire that was intact. But the Germans were in such disarray that the troops could actually cut the wire by hand and move it to one side and go through. Uh, there are numerous war diary entries where it says, if the Germans had put resistance up here, we would have been in trouble because the wire was intact. But we were able to basically just stand there and cut the wire because they always take wire cutters with them um, and, be able to, and therefore take the, fi the final objective trench line that they wanted to take. So they, it's, all of these things had to come together. And if they don't come together, that's when it fails. Um, we're looking at the first day, we're talking about success. You know, they're they're meeting their objective on the green line. Probably, I don't know, that's the first British attack I can think of during the war that, that would have such success like that. Um, but then it kind of continues and goes on and maybe there's diminishing returns that start occurring. You know, what was sort of the driver behind the continued attacks? And, and more importantly, like, you know, what what caused the you know the success to kind of fade sort of after that that first day the first day was very successful in most areas but not in all and what you got to remember is that the overall plan with nivelle was that nivelle was going to attack 7 days later so the whole idea was and this was what haig and nivelle had agreed beforehand is that Haig would, and the British Army would attack, and it was mainly 3rd Army plus the Canadian Corps of 1st Army, would continue to attack, would push the Germans to draw reserves in. So there was always an acceptance that this battle would go on after the first day. Uh, and it would be a number of days until the 16th of April, where the French would then attack. So the idea would be that Germans would have to rush there. We've broken through the Germans, which we had done in some areas on the 9th of April to a certain extent. And then... Um, that would mean the Germans would have to rush reserves in, and they did 
they did move reserves up towards the north. They were quite stunned by some of the advances in the northern part of the north of the River Scarf, the north of Arras. And so they, that part was working. Um, what starts to go wrong in those first days is that we don't carry it on as well as we did before, simply because things start falling apart. And it's really staff work that starts falling apart. It all goes wrong on the 10th. Nothing happens on the 10th for all sorts of reasons. And there's lots of detail, which there's too much detail to go into here. But things start going wrong on the 10th, resulting in virtually nothing happening on the 10th. Certainly, there's no advance on the 10th. We're not continuing to push the Germans. And if you remember, I talked about the, these, div these divisions that were supposed to be in reserve to counterattack being a little bit too far away. Give them a day, and they're starting to come in. Now, they don't come in and counterattack anymore. They're not really coming in. They're coming in in a bit of a dribs and drabs, and it all goes. they're not controlled as well as they should be. The Germans really didn't get that right. But they do provide fresh troops to start manning the defences, the new defences that they've got, wherever they are. And so what happens then in the next few days is that we start to attack, not as a major attack, but little piecemeal attacks, trying to bite off a little bit here and there. And they're quite expensive, and some of them don't work. So we're not pushing the line very far forward anymore, but we continue to attack because the French are going to attack on the 16th. So we have to keep the pressure on. But it's, it's fallen apart a little bit in terms of how it's organised. So Haig steps in during the sort of around the 14th, 15th of April and says, well, the French are going to attack very soon. We need to keep attacking to support that attack, because if that one breaks through and starts going northwards, we need to be going this way as well. So instead of all these piecemeal attacks, we're going to have another major attack, which we'll have. And he wanted it on about the 19th or 20th of April. But for various reasons, it got pushed back, uh, as, his, as his army chief, um, Allenby, and some of the corps and, and divisional chiefs said, we're not really ready. And it was only the 23rd of April. So the Second Battle of the Scarp, as it's called, the second phase of the Battle of Arras, on the 23rd of April, you can still see as planned to be part of the French offensive in the south. Because when it's planned, the French haven't attacked yet. Um, by the time it happens, the French have attacked, have had some limited success for the first couple of days, but it's really ground to a horrific halt, and it's not really going anywhere. And that's a point where... In, when you look back, you start saying, how did the decisions, and what's happened to the decisions, decision making going on here? Because quite simply, Haig does not stop planning to attack. He, he plans another attack on the 28th of April. There's a, the reason that's happening is that some of the Canadian First Army in, in the north were not ready for the 23rd of April, but they wanted to, they wanted to attack as well in the north. So that happens. The northern, there's a northern attack on the 28th of April. In some respects, what's happening here is Haig is still supporting Nivelle. He doesn't have to, because Nivelle's attack has basically failed. But I think there's a the, the agreements before were that Nivelle, if it didn't work in the first two or three days, would call off his attack. And Haig would be allowed to then move all his troops that he needed to the north and attack in Flanders, which is what he's always wanted to do. But he doesn't stop. Uh, Nivelle doesn't stop attacking. He still tries to push forward. He still thinks he's going to break through, even though by now they really should have known that this was not this was a diminishing returns. And I think Haig's uh, gentlemanly officer comradeship kicks in here. He doesn't want to let Nivelle down, whereas he could have just simply said to politicians, "This was the agreement. He's failed. I'm stopping," and he doesn't. 
Uh, and so on the 28th of April, you're then leading towards the 3rd of May, the third battle of the Scarp. And that's the one, as you've, you've reminded me, I call an unmitigated disaster. Because I, as far as I'm concerned, it is a disaster. It's as bad, not quite in numbers terms. It's not as bad in numbers terms because I think we've learned to fight a bit better than the 1st of July 16. But for me, it's as bad with that knowledge in mind as the 1st of July 1916 on the Somme. And it's happening for no real good reason in my, my mind, other than is it, Haig is now saying that Nivelle, Nivelle doesn't continue to attack, he's let Haig down, which is a little bit of a political spin in some respects, because he could have just stopped at any time, really, after the first part of the, uh, the French had failed. But he continues to attack. There are some sources who claim that it's because he knows the French are falling apart. That's untrue. Um, we know that the French do begin to have disobedience and begin to mutiny, but that's after the th it begins around the 3rd of May. So by the time we're fighting on the 3rd of May, there's no knowledge of that. He's supporting simply because he's supporting. But what's really annoying for me on that 3rd, day, on that 3rd of May battle is that it's not a whole lot of new troops who are attacking. Bar one division out of, I think it's a nine divisions attacking that day, or 10 divisions attacking that day, include the Canadians, every single one of them has been there since the start. And some of them are half their size. They're not even a full division anymore. They're far less than their size. There's a brigade that's fighting as a, 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 com a combined battalion um, instead of being four battalions. It's, it's become a little bit of a mess. And the, the Germans are ready for it as well. They now are are actually using their technique of flexible defence. And you, you read on the 3rd of May, all the way along the line, you read about the British troops making advances, getting through the first two or three German lines, and then by the afternoon, being back in their own lines again. They've made some advances, but then they've just been mashed back into their own lines by, these counter, by the counterattacks. That first advance was because there were not that many German troops there to fight because they were all waiting to counterattack, or many of them were waiting, not all, but many of them were waiting to counterattack. We were not destroying troops by, our, by the bombardment at the beginning. And we also were not counter-battery firing anymore, as in anything like, because the staff work had failed, we were not finding out where the German batteries were, we were not silencing the German batteries. So German artillery, when you read the diaries on the 3rd of May, is heavy and causing massive casualties to the British. So there's this diminishing return sort of coming along. And it's, it's an, a point, an area that I think needs um, even more discussion and more uh, work on it to actually start to say, where was the culpability there? Was Haig culpable or was he really being driven forward? Uh, and I think a lot of work's got to be done there that I haven't done yet on that. I've done it on a military level, but I think on a political and background level, more work can be done to find out where the culpability for that particular battle was. But what was happening was basically we, we were not in control of the battle as much anymore. That's the bottom line on that one. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to hear, you know, um, a lot of people attribute the successes of the First World War uh, sort of at the beginning of offensives to all the staff work that's done, all the planning that goes into place. And when battles work, when attacks work, it's because of the, that those preparations. But then that just cannot be replicated, you know, on a day to day basis as the attack moves forward. Um, it's also I agree that it is I, I'm always amazed when I hear about troops that are, you know, 
launched into attack on April 9th and then are still there um, almost a month later being asked to do the same thing um, after being involved in combat and at some capacity for four weeks. I mean, you were saying about, there about, um, I've just lost what I'm going to pick, pick up there, but you, you were saying about the, the fact that, um, that that sort of idea of being prepared as staff and that that was always going to, that's where success comes, that the next days are always difficult. That's where we begin to learn, though. If you look at 1918, the successes from August onwards in 1918, it's because we have a far better functioning staff. Um, because you, I, I've read quite a little, like a, quite a bit on um, Bernard Montgomery, famous of the Second World War, is a staff officer at that point in the First World War. And he describes his day. And his days, basically, he's got ready for a particular day's offensive. He immediately starts working on the next day. He doesn't sort of sit back and say, oh, I've done that bit now. Let's see what happens. And then we'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll wing it when we know what's happened, which is what was happening in 17. It was a sort of, where are we now? Or what do we do then? But he wasn't doing that in 18. He was planning for the next phase. In the same way that if you're in the Second World War, D-Day has got that, what's D-Day, D-Day plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four. They've got it down to days and day, weeks afterwards where we should be and all the staff work to do that. Even if it doesn't work, if it does work, you've got the preparation for the next phase. None of that ever happens in 1917. It begins to happen in 18. So we are learning about that, but we're also getting more experienced. I think a lot, a lot of people forget when they, they criticise staff work in the First World War, is that we, didn't, we never had a general staff, uh, as the Germans and the French do. And we didn't have conscription in the same way the Germans and the French did, where you could actually put together tens and tens, hundreds of thousands of troops at any point and pr practice how to work the staff on that. We winged it with a few divisions in Britain. We had divisional, you know, one division might fight the other, so you'd have a little bit of that. But we didn't have a massive army. Within two years, we have an army that is 10 times the size that it was at the beginning. Where do the staff officers come from? Because all the staff officers that you have at the beginning of the war all go up into GHQ or they're all high-level staff because they're the only ones they've got. So other people have to come up from below. So in the whole officer cadre um, has to be found somewhere. And so by 17, we're still learning. And we're still fine if you're given those few days to prepare and or oh, even weeks to prepare, and you have these lovely staff. That if you look at the op, the um, operational planning for, let's say, the 9th of April, it's page after page after page after page, all the way down to battalion level, all the way down to where the latrines are going to be, where the prisoners are going to be kept, where the where the men are going to be, you know, where everything down to the minutest detail is planned. Because when the action, as you said, when the action hits, you need somebody who's able to just say. That's now happening. Right, the next orders are this. Even if they're handwritten, it doesn't matter. But that starts to fall apart. But it does get better. That's one of the areas where we do improve by 1918. Yeah, I think I, I guess it's one of those things where if you think about, you know, how many instances has the British Army, uh, you know, in in the spring of 1917, how many examples do they have of what they should be doing on the second day of a massive offensive? a couple maybe uh, of sort of what what those days are like and what is required of them as officers to you know create success on follow on days the operational orders change in later 18 in 17 they are this is what you're doing tomorrow 
and our overall objective, and that is usually something about 30 miles away. But that doesn't really tell a divisional commander what to do the next day if he's met his objectives. The commander of fourth division was sitting on the green line on the 10th of April. Nothing happens because he doesn't know what he's supposed to do or how the planning works for that day. He doesn't have operational orders for the 10th of April because they were all for the 9th of April and he's there. And all, all the others who didn't quite meet their objectives, their objectives for the 10th of April were simply do what you're supposed to do the day before. Um, but again, in a disorganized sort of way, not, not really what's the present situation, how's it changed that we need to alter something for you to be able to carry out that. Um, so, but by 18, you see operational orders that are still a lot to do with what's happening the next day, but you see provisional orders um, for what's going to, what the next objective would be. No, not in terms of 30 miles away, but if we get to, you know, if we're that tomorrow, if we reach our objective tomorrow, the next objective is this. And if we actually have the time, we can push, for, we can push forward as well. So it, it gives troops the chance to do that. And it gives artillery men and the artillery units the opportunity to know what might happen as long as the communication goes back. Because sometimes attacks are stopped simply because the artillery are told to lay down a barrage to protect the troops who've got forward. And so the troops sit there, they could go further forward, there's no Germans there, but there's a barrage, in, their own barrage sat in front of them, which they do not dare walk into because it'll kill them all, or kill many of them. And that happened on the 9th of April as well. Uh, there are complaints from two divisional commanders that they would have got further forward, and they could have got further forward, but our standing barrage stopped us. And that's the sort of flexibility that's built in much more in 18, in that sort of more rapid advance situation. So, so we've talked a lot about, you know, sort of staff work and preparations for for future offensives. You know, are, are there other things that the British Army sort of learned from their experiences in these spring 1917 offensives and, and that they took forward with them for the rest of the war? I think they learned that what they'd seen from the Somme and developed, platoon tactics, the, the, bar, the creeping barrage, all of those were carried forward. In fact, the platoon organization went way beyond the, the end of the First World War, right into 18 and onwards. And there were developments of the divisional, 135, for example, the division in attack um, paper pamphlet changes in 18, but not massively. The, the foundation is there. It, they, they, change, they change elements of it. It becomes the 1918 version. But the fact they didn't give it a, a whole new number is very demonstrative that the fact that they were quite happy with it. So they've already made all of those grounds forward. From my point of view, what they didn't do was learn anything from Arras. Because, and I think it's a lot to do with the politics of the situation in that Haig was forced into the Battle of Arras because of the French being in charge of what was going to happen in the first part of 1917. It wasn't his battle. He took part in it because it was part of his duty to do so. He helped set, put it over to Third Army and First Army to carry out. They carried it out. He got involved very much in the latter parts of it. But he was already, his eyes had already turned to Flanders. Um, munitions were already going to Flanders. All troops, all new troops and so on were going to Flanders for his operations later in the year. And I think what that meant was that unlike other situations where, and if, weirdly enough, it was usually when we had a major disaster that we did, a, we, we had a really involved um, analysis of what went wrong. What we didn't do was in a way look at what went right, but what could have been better. And we never looked at that. And in fact, what tended to happen, and I'd have to do, I need to do more work, and I want to do more work on this, is that some of the 
divisional commanders, when things didn't work out as the days went on and the weeks went on, they began to look for blame. And that is something that's gone through into the historiography of today, to today. And some of that is weather. The weather wasn't good. You've got to accept that. It was frosty, muddy, wet, miserable, horrible, cold, and whatever. But they could have got the artillery up. There are, there's little evidence in the artillery diaries of units saying we couldn't move the guns. Sometimes they just simply didn't have any orders to move the guns. I couldn't find orders that said, on the 10th of April, move up to this position. There weren't any for certain units. And some had orders to move forward, and they did move forward. But it took them the whole day to move forward. And one of them was a horse artillery battery. Now, in 1914, a horse artillery battery was supposed to be racing to the front line, unhitching, firing its guns, rushing somewhere else, and so on and so forth. It took almost a day to go to its new position and set up and register firing. So I think what we didn't do was look at what went wrong. And I think if we had, we would have identified that we were not ready yet in our combined arms idea. We had tanks at our ass, but they were the old Mark I, Mark IIs. They weren't really very useful. So that, that area we couldn't really learn in. But some of the other things we've been trying, we saw that it was successful on the ninth. What then goes wrong? And I think it would have, I think, given food for thought with how Third Epe was going to happen. And it might have lent the argument, um, because on Haig's staff, uh, his, one of his, his chief staff, Davison, was actually arguing for what's called bite and hold, a smaller advance, and then holding there, and then another advance, another advance, and so on, against the idea of a breakthrough, a, a major for a breakthrough, uh, which is what eventually was tried with Goff in charge of uh, the, uh, the fighting at Third Epe. The first elements was were just we got to break through again. It doesn't go. It doesn't work. And so what you have is the a repeat really of what's happening at Arras. So I think a lot more could be, could have been taken forward, and I think it needs then a, a third eep to demonstrate that in the attack because you don't then attack again until the next July. Um, in the attack. We still have things to learn. And I think we did learn out of that. And by the time we get through to August and so on, I think we have sorted things out, like our staff work and so on. Um, but for me, we didn't take enough forward from Arras. There wasn't an investigation into how did things work and where did things go wrong? And was it a command, control, or what issues were involved? There was lots of blame of men as well. Um, even the official history still blames the fact that when we broke through the first few German lines, uh, we didn't know how to fight open warfare. The men didn't know how to cope. It, and it's very, very unfair because it was very rarely was a, what I would call an open warfare situation. They moved from trench to trench to trench. They were never in the open thinking, what do we do? Because <laughs> We can't see a trench. What do we do? They were never in that situation. So it's really unfair. But it's demonstrative, I think, that um, in the official history, they're, they're finding blame that really isn't there and not get where it should have been. Yeah, it's a lot easier to kind of blame sort of amorphous things like the weather or various groups of men than to uh, really dig down sometimes to find the actual problems that that occurred. Yeah, I think I think that was the shame out of it. I think it would have, it might have changed how Passchendaele, how 30 was fought. Not necessarily, but might have had some bearing on it. 